Hey, Brian. Hey, Dan. We're in the thick of spooky season. That's right. And hey, listeners, welcome to the 57th episode of The Goods, a film podcast. Today, we will be discussing the 2020 quasi-horror, quasi-teen drama, quasi-comedy, Spontaneous, directed by and written by Brian Duffield. How you doing, Brian? Excited for, for Halloween in, in less than a week from this recording? Yes, it's uh, Halloween, the time that we are currently recording. So Halloween is very close, and you'll you'll be hearing it subsequent, presumably, to the holiday. But that's where our heads are at as we're speaking to you now. How are you, Dan? I'm doing pretty well. I just started a new job. So I've been really busy at work because of that. And yeah, um, it was, well, it was in some sense a relief to only have one movie and not a whole series or a bunch of uh, adaptations to catch up on. But I would have embraced the challenge if that is what I would have selected. But just one film this week. And yeah, I am, I'm, I've been enjoying, I've been really leaning into the spooktober thing this year. I watched like four or five Halloween specials with my daughters watched over the garden wall with them. Um, I've been watching a lot of horror movies as a part of this podcast. So it's probably the most I've ever leaned into at least the media consumption element of Spooktober. That's awesome. Yeah, there are definitely years that I've been deeper into it, but it's, it's picked up. This has been a good uh, home stretch. So spontaneous from last year, of note, and this will be relevant to our, at least some of my talking points, this movie was actually made in 2018 and 2019, and it was released in October of 2020. And as you historians out there may recall, some notable things happened between 2019 and October 2020 that I think, for me at least, fed into my take on this film and some of the things it depicts. And that was honestly a major lens for me on this is really a lot of parallels to COVID and how some of these things made me think of COVID and the things that the characters were going through. So that's going to be a recurring theme for me today. Um, but Brian, had you heard of this movie? No, I'd never heard of this one before. But at one point in the past, I think it was during our Amazing World of Ghosts discussion, which was just last week and was another instance where we were only watching one movie for the week. But maybe it felt like more. That's true. <laughs> that one, you're right. That was another short one for us. So, but I don't know. I've just been in the thick of editing the Sleepy Hollow and Scream episodes. So that's, that's where my head is. But during our Amazing World of Ghosts coverage, I believe I brought up my own past with spontaneous combustion which is just that I used to read a lot of like paranormal library books when I was young. And one that really spooked me at the time when I was like eight was, it may have been even a little later than that. I may have been 11. I don't, I don't know. But for whatever reason, the chapter in one of these books on spontaneous combustion really stuck with me. Typically this, 
I don't know if you'd call it a conspiracy theory, this oddity occurs when someone appears to have burned up in a fire with no obvious source of ignition. And another telltale sign is that only the body appears to have been damaged by the incident. There's nothing around them that's burned. Interesting. And this is something that stuck with you. Yeah, yeah. So I'm glad that you pulled this one out of the woodwork. Yeah. Uh, when did you become aware of it? You know, I don't know. Um, sometime in the past, obviously in the past year, sometime since I've been back into movies, it was just on some watch list. And I was like, huh, never heard of that one. And I saw it kind of pitched as a teen black comedy with elements of teen romance and horror to it. And I was like, that sounds intriguing. I'll, I'll put a pin in that one. So it never, never left my mind after that. And I'm, I'm glad I got a chance to catch up with it. Yeah, I'll also say I once watched an interview with Salvador Dali, and he pronounces spontaneous, spontaneous. <laughs> and so when I read it, that's how I, I read it these days. That's good. Is that from the uh, animation that you sent me, the YouTube? Uh, yeah, yeah, an old school YouTube favorite of mine from like 2008, where a guy chopped up a Dali interview, and it's called Interview with Dali. Gotcha. And he makes a lot of strange sounds. I am curious to see what order it normally goes in, because I can't really think of a context in which the things that he's doing make sense. But he is Salvador Dali. Gotcha. Yeah. So since you had your kind of spontaneous combustion youth fear, I will share that I, I had a similar one. I don't know if it was quite as striking to me or, or quite as uh, memorable to me as it seems to have been for you, but... I read a book that's probably not too different from the types of ones that you're describing, which was basically what are weird and scary phenomena that actually exist in the world. And it, it kind of came at it from a more scientific angle. So like trying to explain what it might actually be. And one was reports of people's heads exploding, which is more of the type of spontaneous combustion that this movie depicts. But the one I read about it just was so creepy. It was a head exploding and the cause, according to this, and now that I'm thinking about it, it might have been one of the Uncle John's readers that I read it in, not like a, a paranormal type book. But anyways, um, basically, you know, there's a lot of electricity in our brain. That's how things flow in the neurons. And there's apparently a rare but possible defect in the brain where it builds up electricity and to the point that it, it can't store it anymore. And so it combusts and blows up the brain. And that thought was just horrifying to me. And oh. for like a year after that, whenever I got a headache, I was like, is it happening? <laughs> that is interesting. I mean, I, I once discharged a capacitor when I was taking apart a disposable camera and that knocked me on my ass. So maybe you could do it. Yeah. Who's to say? Maybe a brain has got a capacitor in there somewhere. I didn't know that a camera did. So, Right, right. And the other one that was kind of like that for me, totally unrelated, is it might have been the same place where I read it or it might have been some other time. I read about a couple of cases where people didn't know that they had heart attacks. Like they continued to move and operate despite their heart essentially like ceasing to function for like multiple minutes and scientists don't know how they did it. 
but they're pretty sure it happened. And so then like I got paranoid and would like whenever I started feeling weird, I would like grab my chest or my neck and see if I could still feel my pulse or I had like had one of those heart attacks or I didn't know I was having a heart attack. So. Or you inhaled some trioxin. <laughs> That's right. Uh, good callback. Yeah. So the director and writer of this is a guy named Brian Duffield. And he is kind of this hot young guy in Hollywood right now. He has sold a bunch of scripts basically on spec. Just like, hey, here's a thing I wrote. If you think it's good, buy it from me which is like the dream for anyone who, who's interested in screenwriting and has sold a whole bunch this way. Like there was one, a Netflix movie called The Babysitter that was directed by the guy who goes by Mick G, I think it is, that got pretty good reviews. And there's been a couple others he's sold. This is his first directing effort. So he both wrote and directed this one. But it'll be interesting to see if he's kind of like that guy we talked about in Scream where his career just kind of, he does one or two more things and then he kind of falls off the map. Or if he becomes a fixture like Aaron Sorkin, yeah. Brian, had had you heard of this guy or, or do you know if you've seen anything by him before? No, that's not a name that rings a bell. Gotcha. And then the cast is a lot of uh, rising teen stars right now. So the, the lead is Catherine Langford, who plays a character named Mara. Is this an actress you'd encountered, Brian? Yeah, so she's the 13 Reasons Why girl. I mentioned that I did watch that show back during our discussion of Paper Towns, the John Green adaptation. But what I find striking about Katherine Langford is that she is actually Australian. And you wouldn't know it from those two roles, uh, 13 Reasons Why and this one, because she's doing an American accent. And that is something that always trips me up. But like in the behind the scenes, 13 Reasons Why footage, she talks about when I was cast in the role of Hannah Baker. It's like, <laughs> oh, my God. What? What? Where did that come from? It, it's it. When it's like that, you got to assume that one of the accents is the put on. And I mean, I guess it's the American one, but it I don't know. It just, one just seems like more work. <laughs> I, th I think of American as being the lazy accent. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I did not know at all that she wasn't American. Her her accent, I'd never noticed her talking weird, which I sometimes do. I've mentioned mm -hmm. I, I'm less good about it than my wife. My wife can always tell you if, if they're faking an American accent, but I've certainly noticed it sometimes and, and did not notice it here or in anything I've seen her in. She's actually been in a bunch of things I think 13 Reasons Why was her breakout. She's She was in the Ryan Johnson movie Knives Out. And then she was in another Netflix show called Cursed. And then she also was in the gay romantic comedy Love, Simon, which I found extremely charming. Oh, um, she, she plays a kind of minor role in it. So I've seen her in quite a few things. She definitely seems to be a rising star. And I have to say, I think she's actually... A good actress who actually seems sort of like a teen, which is kind of hard to find someone who is both of those things. So I'm not too surprised that she's been casting a lot of stuff. Yeah, good point. Did you recognize any of these other faces from the cast? I did. Yeah. So Charlie Plummer. It's funny you mentioned Paper Towns, the John Green adaptation. Charlie Plummer is the co-star here. He plays a guy named Dylan Hovemeyer, a classmate and romantic interest of Mara's. And 
he is the star of the adaptation of Looking for Alaska that aired on Hulu. It was only like six or eight episodes, and each one was about an hour. Um, it was extremely faithful. It was pretty good. And he did, a, he did a good job in the lead there. I had never heard of him before that. And this is the only the second thing I've seen him in, although he starred in another teen drama that got really good reviews that I discovered when I was researching this. I'm going to see if I can figure out what it's called. But you know who else is an Australian actor who occasionally puts on an American accent is Hugh Jackman. So oh. <laughs> it is possible to welcome those people into the fold. Um, but the other movie that I'm now interested in seeing him in is called Words on the Bathroom Walls, which also came out in 2020. And then the the last one is the kind of third lead. She's much less major than the other two is Mara's best friend named Tess. And the actress is named Haley Law. And she comes from Riverdale, the Gonzo CW Archie adaptation. A lot of people have come out of that and had roles in different things. So I wasn't surprised to see a Riverdale face here. Anyways, yeah, uh, a pretty interesting cast with a good cross-section of talent there. So I'm ready to, to dive into this movie and maybe and we can share our thoughts as, as we dig into it. Any other kind of thoughts before we dive in here? No, let's tell the tale. All right. So Mara, that's Catherine Langford's character. She's a senior in high school. Uh, she's very snarky, jokey. She is sitting in math class one day when the girl sitting right in front of her just bursts. It's just her body explodes like a balloon filled with blood and guts. And the viscera just like splatters everywhere in a huge radius. The ceiling, the floor, the people, the walls. And we get a glimpse of like where she was sitting and her like clothes have fallen there, but also like her detritus, her organs are like all lingering there. And this is all in the opening scene of the film. And it is like a hell of a gruesome opening moment. Yeah, there's a lot of blood, but it's consistent in the usual depiction of spontaneous combustion in that nothing else is like damaged, like you'd expect to be with a bomb or something as we'll see because investigators are going to get involved but yeah it's a mess it had me wondering dan what are some of the bloodiest movies that you have seen so i actually have a good answer for this the 2017 thriller called revenge is almost certainly the bloodiest movie i've ever seen it's a movie about a woman who gets assaulted and abandoned. And the rest of the movie is her just hunting down the people who wronged her. And just so much fake blood in that. I don't know if you've ever seen like the tweet, someone who's good at the economy, please help me. It has a bunch of like common sense things listed. And then it has one dumb expense really, really high. So like in the original, it's uh, candles. It's just like a joke tweet. But I've seen that like format applied to different things and i would say this is a movie where you could say like what's the movie budget and list all of them like cast directing lights and then you have a ridiculous number for fake blood because it just seems like this movie is a river of fake blood and that was revenge 2017 what about you brian any memorable bloody ones yeah so a couple things come to mind there's an episode of dexter and i mean his whole thing is dealing with blood and analyzing blood left behind at crime scenes 
but there's like a guy who's specifically trying to communicate with him just drains a bunch of bodies of blood and collects it all up and is like got all the stuff in it to keep it from clotting and just fills a hotel hallway with it kind of shining style but it's like a carpeted hallway and it looks really gross i <laughs> like that might not be the the biggest in sheer amount but it really turned my stomach but maybe the uh, highest amount was in one of Peter Jackson's early movies called Dead Alive. It's a zombie movie that turns like the gross out factor up to 11 so that it verges into comedy territory. But at one point there's a room full of zombies and one of the characters straps a lawnmower to their chest so the blade is facing out forward and just goes marching through the zombie room. <laughs> and that's pretty funny yeah it's just spraying everywhere oh also i i feel like it's relevant to bring up monty python's the meaning of life did you ever see that one i've seen holy grail and life of brian but i don't think i've ever seen meaning of life okay so in meaning of life there's a scene where this cartoonishly fat man walks into a fancy restaurant and eats everything on the menu and is like frothing at the mouth because he can just barely keep it all inside himself and then the waiter comes up and asks if he'd like a wafer thin mint and he eats the mint and then he explodes all over all the fancy dressed patrons just spattering them with gore that's disgusting yeah yeah <laughs> so a, a taste of that here yeah this, this one's up there this one has a lot of blood in it for sure but in the fallout of that, everybody is, of course, freaked out and nobody can explain it. Like cops get involved. Doctors are asking questions. None of the students or parents seem to know. And everybody's freaked out. And, and we do see the, them go to the funeral. One really striking image for me was and like this is when the movie kind of verged into more straightforward drama or like at least going away from the ridiculous high concept and like trying to treat the human emotions of it. But we see the dad of the girl who died peeling off the stick figure family sticker of the daughter from their minivan. I'm glad that it, it, this movie occasionally goes back into like the human component of the ridiculous concept. Um, certainly in the last half hour, quite a bit of that. Yeah. There's dark and sad stuff in this movie for sure. While most people are kind of treating it as this tragic one-off, Mara speculates aloud that it could potentially happen again. And this freaks out her classmates who don't even want to try to think about that. Yeah, because they all get brought into the police station and they've all got like tracksuits or sweatsuits that they've been given because obviously they were all <laughs> subject to a blood balloon. Right. Yeah. And so they're all sitting around and yeah, she mentions, but what happens if it happens again? Yeah. And like somebody gets sick to their stomach at the thought of this. Yeah. Around this time we meet Tess, who is Mara's best friend. And they have a dream of retiring on a beach together someday. It's like their, their thing. They text each other beach houses. They might want to, retire to someday but later that evening Mara gets a text from an unknown number and 
it's someone confessing to have a crush on her. And Mara, who is mentioned is a very snarky rather than like doing the earnest reply, just says, please don't send dick pics. And he immediately replies, sending pictures of famous Richards. So different kind of dick pic. The one we see is Richard Nixon, but they say later that it, it went on beyond that. Just the kind of uh, casual teen comedy that uh, I, I always enjoy seeing this type of stuff. It's, it's cute. Yeah, I mean, there were like checkboxes I was checking off of what what things make this a Dan movie. And I'm like, I'll bet Dan likes this exchange, but I enjoyed <laughs> it, too. Yeah, I, I like that after he sends the Richard Nixon picture, he says, sorry, it's crooked. It's a it's a crooked dick. <laughs> that's yeah, that's that clever. was rather clever. We also around this time get a snapshot on what will become a theme of the movie, which is that uh, Mara seems to have a tendency to cope with this darkness in her life by intoxicating herself. So she hooks up with some drug dealers in her class who sell her some shrooms. And she goes to a cafe with Tess and pours the shrooms in the tea and drinks the whole glass at once. I have to say, I have never done shrooms and this movie did not make me want to do shrooms. No, not really. <laughs> Weirdly, I had someone I knew in high school come up to me once not that long ago and ask me if I knew where to get shrooms. <laughs> because apparently I'm the one who would know, I guess. I don't know. I, that was a false assumption because I could not tell him. Right. I, I wouldn't really know where to get started. So I it, I wouldn't have been helpful to him either. So. But the movie does not drag out the mystery of who is the dick pic sender because quickly Dylan, who is the other co-star played by Charlie Plummer, comes and introduces himself as she is beginning her drug trip and they kind of connect while she's in the midst of her drug trip. She gets sick and throws up a lot and he's like holding her hair and towards the end of the evening, they agree to go to homecoming together. And Dylan confesses that he the reason that he finally decided to text her is because he is feeling an increased sense of urgency to live in the moment, given the explosion that has happened that could, per Mara's comment, happen again at any point. This brought to mind for me a discussion we've had previously about romance during the apocalypse and how do we feel about stories where there's sexy times going on while all the characters have like the sword of Damocles hanging above them? And is that compelling? <laughs> Does it feel the same as not having that threat there? But I, I mean, I can get the impetus and the instinct to live in the moment if you could pop at any time. Right. I think in this case, it didn't stick out to me too much because it's not like a uh, societal collapse level apocalypse. It's like a, I don't know what's going to happen to me and how much longer I am going to live. It's like the episode of the Simpsons where he eats the fish that he thinks is poisoned. And so he like tries to do everything on his bucket list in one day after that. And to me, it's almost like 
that where it inspires you to do it rather than making you wonder what's the point even. Man, shout out to the Fugu episode of The Simpsons. <laughs> eight out of eight episode for me. So, oh yeah, I'm it's a good glad one. Glad we're talking it here. The scene in there where he goes and listens to Lisa play the sax is one of a handful of Simpsons moments that legitimately chokes me up. So we're now something like a week later. They go to the home. When I say a week later, a week after the first pop, they go to the homecoming game together. And wouldn't you know it? There, another person explodes. It's another senior from their class. It's someone who's out on the football field. Also someone that Mara had just finished talking about. Oh, yeah, that's right, because they had been doing some gag about, I forget exactly what it is, but like when you put some last names together, it makes something crude. Yeah, well, it's two of them are Love and Cox, and then there's like an Asian guy who has the last name Wee. Yeah, and I think this guy was Love, right? Yeah, I think. yeah, Love yeah. was in the middle. So we love Cox, and she's joking about that, and then he explodes. Yeah. So well, let's keep an eye on that thread, because I think there's... There's maybe something to that. I think it's worth discussing what the movie wants us to think about the, the connection to Mara here for sure. But indeed, after this explosion, there is, of course, a new panic. And now when the unexplainable has happened twice in a concentrated area, that, of course, attracts the media attention. It attracts the the crazies, the panic and the condition of people exploding it starts to get called the Covington Curse, because I guess their high school is named Covington or something like that. And a bit later, we're now two explosions in. A bit later at a party, uh, Dylan and Mara are kind of continuing to connect, build their budding attraction to each other, and they kind of walk out of the party and start kissing. But their makeout session is interrupted by screams from inside the party as it turns out, yet another person has exploded. Another member of their senior class, the Covington curse continued. So did you see on this one, Brian, any connection to Mara? I, I, I didn't pick up on one if there was one there. She just happened to be at the party as well. No, so this, I hadn't really been thinking about a connection at this point. It's really the next batch that I was like, oh, it's Mara. Yeah. We'll talk about that in a second. But one thing I wanted to say is whenever one of these people pops, the sound is really sickening. It really struck out to me how good the sound design was in this movie. Uh, production design, too. They didn't skimp on the blood. I agree. I, I recently have watched a show on Netflix called Manhunt. It blurs in with Mindhunter, which is also on Netflix and is also a true crime show. But, but no, Manhunt is a dramatization of true crime cases where they're hunting bombers. And and so it's about bombing attacks. And the sound that they used in this is kind of like the sound effect in that. Just this deep, very bass boom that you like feel in your chest. I don't know. It, like if you were watching this with a good subwoofer setup, it would really get to you. Right. But there's more to it on the sound than just like a boom. There's also wet stuff going on. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, I mean, I don't know how to describe it other than it sounds like a huge sack of something 
viscous like flesh exploding and it's really gross you're right and and we get to hear it from a bunch of different distances away like yes. right up close on the other side of the room behind a wall down on a field and every time they got it right agreed and the look of it too i mean we kind of talked a little bit about how it like it doesn't impact other things but in, in the sense like it's not blowing up and damaging other things but similar to how you say we we hear it from all different angles we also see it from different angles sometimes in frame sometimes not in frame sometimes in the background sometimes right in front of us there's a note worthy one coming up that is like very much right in front of us yeah so for the first few it like cuts away right before it happens some character looks down or looks off to the side and i was afraid that was going to be the way they did every single one um where they were like pulling a punch but it it's not really like that we do start to see the pops happening on screen yeah and just in general they put in a lot of thought and effort to make it viscerally distressing basically every time that it happened. I guess the exception being there's like one montage where the point kind of is that it just keeps happening and happening. But in general, most of them, especially the ones that advance the plot, are very haunting, each of them. Yep. Um, so at this point, the it's three people I think we're at now. The FBI is thoroughly investigating this and trying out investigating different theories and we meet this fbi agent who who recruits mara basically they're wondering could it be there's some bad drugs going around the neighborhood that's making people's systems go all whack and so they recruit mara to basically go buy as many local drugs as she can so she goes to these drug dealers who gave her the shrooms and it's like, hey, I have an unlimited budget. Let me buy all of your drugs right now. And they're like, all right, we'll take you to our stash. And they get into the car and you just know, I, I was starting to catch on that there is going to be time, like they frame a scene in a certain naturalistic sort of way that this could be a scene where somebody explodes. And so I was just waiting for it. I was like, when is it going to happen? And they they threw me off again because it's not just one person who explodes. It's both drug dealers that explode. And this is one of the more crazy, striking, haunting moments of the film. Yeah, but they, they time it really well because the driver pops. And so then, well, what happens to the interior of this car after somebody pops inside it, Dan? Yeah, I, I did want to talk about that because... This was like crazy. The blood is everywhere. It's coating the coating the windows and windshields. And so there's like a moment of shock. And then because it's the driver who blew up, they're like panicking to get to the steering wheel and the brake. Exactly. Yeah. But they can't see out the window because it's covered in blood. And like as they're reaching down, it's like squishy because there's the person who blew up down there and the lighting in this just kind of blew my mind. It's like a red hue on everything because the light is coming through the windows that are now completely covered in blood. And man, this was like, I was, my jaw was dropped as this was happening. It just like kind of casts an ominous tint, just really an entrapping sense of violence on it, I guess. And then just when the shock is wearing off, 
Then the second person, guys. Exactly, yeah. So the the car crashes and it kind of cuts away as the car crashes and we see Dylan arriving. It was never clear to me how Dylan knew that this happened because Mara is still in like a state of shock and distress. So like, I don't know if she would have texted him or what, but he basically knows exactly where to find her. Well, no, what it was, was they were texting back and forth before, like while she was in the car Uh. driving along. So I don't know how he knew where to find her, but like they were mid conversation and then presumably it cut off. Right. Or like she typed shit. It happened and hit send just after it happened or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. And uh, he reveals that he he also passed it on to the FBI and they're like just starting to like, I don't know, embrace. She's like run away from the site and into like a creek and is like washing the blood off of her, clearly traumatized at this point. And just as like, it seems like they're starting to comfort each other. Dylan looks over his shoulder and it's like, holy shit, what is that? And what appears to be like an alien spaceman or something like that appears. Well, it's the guys from E.T., which they immediately reference. Exactly, yeah. All the people walking up in biohazard suits. And so at this point... This is the point where I was pretty certain that Mara must be the one doing it because it was the person right in front of her at class. Then it was the person she was talking about on the football field. Then it was these two people in the car. You're right that there's somebody pops at the party and she's not directly involved in that. It doesn't seem to be, but she's still, you know, there. Right. Like it's not people at other places in the town. It's just this group and she's on the premises at the very least. And so I thought that the government had also reached this conclusion and that's why they're coming to round her up. But as we soon see, it's not just her that they're rounding up. It's everybody from the class. Yeah. I was pretty sure it was going to, at some point, at least if not directly implicate Mara, have Mara or somebody wonder if Mara was the cause, because you're right. It's like too coincidental that, It's all these people who are right next to her at various times or who she'd been connected to in some way. Also, she dresses up as Carrie for Halloween. So they wanted us to think this because obviously Carrie massacres her senior class at a, you know, at the, the dance at the end. I haven't actually watched the movie. I just know that that's what happens and she does it with psychic powers. So see, it's like a, a false Chekhov's gun because you're wearing the Carrie dress we know that there's things that make blood splatter in this world, but I don't think she gets splattered when she's wearing the carry dress. Right. Well, she says she couldn't do the blood splatter because it would have been tasteless. <laughs> yeah, which yeah, that's true. It may, may, may have already crossed a line, but. I will say with regards to whether Mara was the quote unquote cause of the whatever curse or whatever is causing this. Um, I had bought in at this point to the idea that I hoped the movie never gave us an explicit answer because that made it scarier to me. And like, I felt kind of realistic that we wouldn't have like a real, I don't know, unmasking of what the actual thing was. So I I don't know. That's where my head was at this point. Um, We'll we'll kind of see where it goes from there. Yeah. I wasn't sure what was going to happen. I just know that when I Googled this movie to find it, to watch it, the suggested question was, why did it happen? <laughs> so, I 
I I wasn't sure they would give us a reason. Yeah, yeah. But yes, after this latest one, Mara and Dylan get quarantined and isolated from each other in these like clear plastic things physically separating each other, these screens sort of. And then after this, they are kind of all in quarantine together with like a government agency shutting down school and like actively trying to figure out how to quote unquote cure the explosions that are going on. This is the moment for me where I was like, okay, whether it was intentional or not, this is basically a COVID parallel right now, or excuse me, a COVID parable right now about like, I don't know, just depicting so much of some of the things we had to experience during COVID. Like, is the government going to figure it out? Can we even trust them if they figure it out? Why is everything coming to a grinding halt our entire lives because of this thing? Um, we're totally isolated from the people around us. We aren't supposed to even touch them for for like one of those scenes. Um, there is a sense of fear anytime they like, I don't know, you when the parents get a phone call from the, the agents or whatever. And I, I don't know, did that strike you at all as you were watching, Brian? I can see it now. If I saw it while I was watching it was during this scene, because, yeah, everybody's in their own little bubbles. And I know when I saw these plastic walls, I thought, oh, great. They found another clear plastic thing to have somebody pop inside. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I was just waiting for those walls to get spattered. Right, right. But it's the whole class who ends up kind of in this quarantine and they kind of have this boring day to day life. And so we get glimpses of Mara and Dylan falling deeper in love, making out in the shower stall, etc., what it made me think of a little bit that we haven't brought up on pod yet is Squid Game. Mm. Because everybody's wearing these sweatsuits again, at least for part of it. And they're all, you know, trapped together with the threat of death looming over them. And there's this group of, you know, agents guarding every door. That's interesting. I really like Squid Game. I, I mean, it's like tiger king at the beginning of the quarantine that it got pushed to everybody's screen so it's not really special that i've seen it and liked it but it just really had me on the edge of my seat yeah i haven't caught up with that one but i can see what you're saying from the screenshots and memes and stuff i've seen so i would like to see it at some point this is where we get a montage of the government trying to figure out how to cure the explosions like they have them try different pills but like each pill, which is kind of color coded a different way, we see somebody explode and then it cuts to somebody else taking a different color pill. And so it's clear they're like trying different medicines on these people and none of them are sticking. And they have like cheesy government PowerPoints about how we're all in this together, which is like a very COVID thing for me, too. Yeah, I was wondering, I think they could have shown a little more of how they were even going about creating these pills. Like what kind of tests were they doing? Because it was pretty clear to me that whatever was causing it was, like, magical. And, and maybe not in the sense of it being a spell or a psychic attack, but that it was completely beyond explanation. Yeah, they have a conversation that kind of touches on that, where they say they're trying to figure it out. And they say, for all we know at this point, it's a warlock. And I think it's Tess says, yeah, man, it could be a warlock. It's like... It's a thing that they just have absolutely no explanation for. You're right that it would have been interesting to see like some of the thought process, especially like 
if their blood always ended up being normal or like how do, or do they even have an idea of what they should be trying? Do they have any medical explanation for it? Yeah, I would like to see the approach to scientifically testing this. Right. I This whole segment felt just felt kind of weird to me, um, like this montage bit. I didn't I, I I figured that they were trying to do the let's figure it out, but it's kind of got like a weirdly playful tone to it which didn't jibe with the explosion still happening. Like it didn't feel as fearful. And I think some of that might be intentional. Like they're trying to show, Hey, teens know how to cope with whatever life throws at them. So life still went on, even as they were isolated and blowing up. Right. Well, I mean, I think the movie as a whole wants to be an edgy comedy. Right. But yeah, see, I feel like some scenes tread the line of getting the comedy and the surprise goriness to play more nicely with like the narrative punch and the, the dramatic elements of it. And so parts of that were a mixed bag for me, but I don't know. It's something we can maybe talk about on our, our good things and, and not so good things. I mean, did it work for you overall in that regard? Or um, did you think the tone was a little bit off? It's hit or miss. When the first jock guy got brought up to, like, give an example and pops all over everybody, the Steve Holt character, I mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of funny. I chuckled at that. Yeah, yeah. But they, they finally hit on a pill that they think is the, the magic one, the one to, to solve it, and they call it the snooze button. This is one thing that didn't track for 2020 and 2021. They just, they call it, the COVID vaccine. They don't give it a cute name and they call it either the five, like the company that makes it or something, but there's much ballyhoo about how this is a cheesy name for this thing that is going to be the linchpin on their life or death. Yeah. I thought it would have a scientific name. Like there's a Dave Barry column about making up fake drug names. Mm. And he, he mixes together the words paradigm and gerbil to make gerbadime and paradil. (laughs) <laughs> and that's that a name like that is what I was expecting. And since this one seems to be the, the pill that has fixed them, they let the teens out of quarantine. The kids go back to school and we witness what you might call a new normal for a bit. There's they're in school. They're doing school stuff. They're getting checkups to make sure that their pill is working. And Mara and Dylan's relationship continues to progress in several ways. They finally have sex together about halfway into the movie. And so it seems like things have reached a kind of steady cadence where things are back to normal. And then we hit what I think of as the scene of the movie, the one that I will be thinking of whenever I look back on this movie. So we see the kids in school and they're in a classroom and a doctor is at the front of the classroom, basically giving an update on how the pill is working, explaining to the class that is still surviving on how the drug is working. Okay, before we move on, can I say one thing? Yes. All right. So I was wondering this whole movie what the popping was a metaphor for. Mm -hmm. And like, would there be some specific activity that triggers the popping? Mm -hmm. Um, So nobody pops during the sex scene. For, for one, but I was also wondering, you know, they call it the snooze button. So 
you use the snooze button to like return to sleep. You put put something to sleep, but not forever, for like ten minutes. And so you gotta periodically hit the snooze button. So I was wondering, is is something awakening? What's what's awakening? What does this mean? And that's what was going through my head. And I'll come back to this at the end with what conclusions I was able to draw or not draw. Okay. Yeah, I'd like to hear that. Because indeed, we've had like a long break from, I think they show like up on the blackboard, there's some number circled. It's like maybe 31 or something. I don't know, days, maybe it's 60 days or something since the last uh, explosion. The doctor is explaining how it works, calls a student up to basically like do a demo sort of of like, here, you do this thing and it will be a metaphor for how this drug works. And like as that is initiating, the guy up in the front of the class explodes. Okay, this movie has done this a few times for us, like misdirect us on exactly the timing of when the next thing will happen. So at this point, I was like, oh, damn. That is like another one of these explosions we've seen. And it was another one that worked pretty well. And this was maybe the first one that was dead center in the frame while we're watching it happen. Yeah. And I felt just the slightest hair cheated because it's like one frame they're there and the next frame they're a red cloud. It happens instantaneously. Yeah. I haven't gone to the tape, but it's they're just like they're there and then they're not. I wanted a little more of body parts spraying around Tom Savini style. Interesting. Yeah. But it also wasn't too CGI, though. It wasn't super fake how they did it. It's just like they're there and then they're not there and a bunch of blood is there instead. Yeah, it did feel the blood, at least, like the viscera felt practical effect E. Right. Um, even if the explosion itself. Yeah. So I liked that. I just thought we'd see a little bit more like slow motion ripping apart. But that that may have that may have been the opposite of the practical effects. We probably would have gotten a lot of digital stuff if we did. Yeah. Yeah, perhaps. Okay, so this one kid has exploded, the class starts panicking, and just like less than ten seconds after that, another kid explodes. And then another, and then another, and it's like pop, 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 all in the class. And I was like, oh, what, what's happening? It's all happening at once. And everybody who is surviving is like running out the door, panicking, freaking out. Like we see kind of in the periphery, people who had been running next to Mara are also exploding. And each time they're popping, popping. This shook me as this was happening. I was like, oh, my God. Did this evoke anything specific for you, Brian? I'm wondering what you're going to say. I have two examples that... Since I read your note here, it's made me think of one is the scene in the office where like Pam is pregnant and she smells something gross that Dwight has brought for lunch. And so she throws up or maybe she doesn't even throw up. Maybe Dwight is trying to get her to throw up, but like somebody else throws up and then just it starts a chain reaction and everybody in the office is throwing up. <laughs> um, but then the other thing I thought of is. Squid Game again. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Because not to spoil the first episode, I'm sure if you've seen the memes, you you know what happens at the end of the first episode is this is when people realize that if you lose one of the games, you just immediately get shot to death. 
and the game that they're playing is red light, green light, so you're not supposed to move. But once one person sees that people are getting shot, they a bunch of them start running and panicking. And then, obviously, they're moving when they're not supposed to move, so they're all getting shot. Oh, wow, yeah. Well, what I was going for, and what this really made me think of, is, and I, I am very confident that this was intentional. This is shot with the panic and the violence and the burst of blood and the abruptness that I would associate with a school shooting. And I, I think this was trying to evoke that experience. Just like the panic in the halls, the blood, the, oh my gosh, this person who I was just next to is bloody and gone. And who, where do I go? How do I find my loved ones? And I don't know. I thought, I thought that was uh, pretty powerful. Yeah, I can see that. Just a good scene of mass panic. So then basically the survivors get out of the school. Oh, sorry. There's one other kind of memorable one that I, I want to mention one pop here, which is that there's one guy who has been kind of conspiratorial this whole time. And he like continues to be, he goes to school, but he continues to be scared. And so he's like in all this kind of padding and get up, um, like supposedly concealing himself. And he runs into Mara in the halls in the, in the midst of this chaos. And he's like, come on, you got to come with me. And he, cause he's wearing like these big, thick, rigid pads. He then, so he explodes, but because of those pads, like it kind of stands stiff and still up for a bit. And then like, gradually collapses as Mara kind of realized what just happens. Oh man. Favorite shot in the movie. This, this was like a Napoleon dynamite character, just like a, a nerd. And yeah, he made himself this suit of armor and then it like deflates with all the blood. Oh man. That was a wild one. Yeah. Um, but eventually Mara makes it outside and she is, uh, she finds Dylan and they're, they, they reconnect relieved that, Neither of the other has gone boom the way that everyone, many in the class have. And shot the way that it's shot and edited is very striking. So they they see each other. And so you have a point of view shot of one of the characters and then it cuts to the other character and you see their point of view and it's just the other person's face. So we're seeing each other's faces alternating and they're. Uh, confessing their love for each other. At least I think Dylan in particular is confessing his love and, and gratitude that she survived. And when it, it shows Dylan's face at the moment that it would cut to Mara's perspective and we would see his face again. Instead, we just see a wall of red and the noise cutting out. And so the implication is that he has exploded and that is in fact what has happened and the reason they say the the sound cut out is that like a piece of his bones hit her skull or something like that and like uh made her briefly lose her hearing or something like that and the way that this was shot was like just on top of the previous scene that had kind of already blown me away if you'll excuse the bad usage of words this one was kind of the, the cherry on top of like the brutal gut punch just depicted in a really harrowing way. Yeah, they said it was his jawbone hit her forehead and left a scar. So it's like a ultraviolet kiss that's going to stick with her. Right. I like that. Yeah, that's good. What this made me think of, especially the way it used the POV to convey this, 
I'm going to discuss a spoiler for one of the most famous pop culture moments of the 21st century. That is the end of The Sopranos. So Tony Soprano is kind of the main protagonist there. He, in the very last scene, which has become this really iconic and memorable thing, I feel like I don't hear about it as much as I did like five years ago, but was like one of those pop culture moments that literally everybody was talking about and was like mocked on SNL and stuff like that. But Tony Soprano, the the lead gangster here, he is in this diner waiting for his family to arrive. And it does this thing where there's this pattern of we hear the door open, we cut to his perspective POV, and it looks up at the door and he sees who's inside. And like the fifth time that this happens, when we would expect to see his POV, instead it just cuts to black and cuts to silence. Probably the most common theory is like, this is a way of telling us that he died while putting us in his shoes. It's like, just immediately it all ended. Um, I think there are other ways to read that specific ending, but this definitely made me think of that. And um, yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was a really uh, striking moment for the. So just because you brought up the Sopranos, I'm going to reference the office one more time. There's a scene where Michael's, trying to impress people at an Italian restaurant and he orders gabagool, which I assumed was just a word that he made up because the waitress doesn't understand him and none of the other characters understand him. But apparently it's something they say a lot on The Sopranos and it's like the New Jersey way to pronounce capicola ham. Oh, (laughs) interesting. That's funny. And there's like a Gabagool Sopranos supercut of every time they say it. And it's a lot of times. That's pretty funny. Jack Rose. (laughs) But with Gabagool. Yeah. Another good one is um, Interstellar, where the one character, the Matthew McConaughey's character shouts, Murph, which is his daughter's name a whole bunch of times. And there's a supercut, supercut of that as well. That's funny. We knew a Murph in high school. Oh, yeah. And who can forget Avatar The Last Airbender, the supercut of Zuko saying the word honor. Another great one. Or the supercut of them saying anything but kill or die. <laughs> I haven't seen that, but that's, uh, yeah. Uh, I might have to end him. <laughs> that's something we talked about on one of our proto the goods podcasts we talked about avatar and that was something we discussed which i hadn't really thought too much about and gets further emphasized in cora when someone is assassinated but like they can't mention death like you basically see the person suffocate on screen and they're like the queen is no more and that's like all that they can say about it (laughs) Uh, so glad we finally saw an airbender suck somebody's air out yeah Right. It's like up there with bloodbending. It's something you just think of. And it's like, oh, of course they got to do that. But yeah, so in the the fallout of this very violent mass explosion, mass bursting, everybody's devastated. The community's devastated. Mara in particular is very traumatized and sinks into a deep alcoholic depression where she alienates her parents, Tess, her best friend, the FBI agent tries to reach out to her and Tess like throws a liquor bottle and breaks the cop's window. We see her like 
digging into a subreddit of conspiracy theories about the curse and highlights a thread. Hey, it's Mara is clearly the cause. It's like the same way that you have these online detectives like doing trying to solve true crime things. Somebody's trying to figure out that it's Mara who's the cause. And it's like a very interesting take on survivor's guilt. I thought like seeing her trying to cope with this and the school year kind of goes on and remember they're seniors. So there's like this, I guess, combined prom graduation that she reluctantly goes to while drunk, but she does reconcile with Tess. And as she's crossing the stage, she announces that she is the curse because that's the decision she's made, which was kind of funny for me, but also kind of insightful. Like a whole bunch of other classmates stand up and explain that they think they are the curse. And as viewers, we've seen like enough stuff actually related to Mara that I think we're more inclined to think that Mara's theory holds more water. But I just kind of like this idea that everybody who had survived had this element of survivor's guilt where they were blaming themselves for what happened. Yeah, I thought this was good. Also, a lot of times in this movie, all this terrible stuff is going on and what the characters will say is, oh, I just want to make it to graduation. Like, you know, the stereotypical line of anybody who hates high school, oh, just just wait until graduation. You just got to wait until you graduate and get out of here. But this is when it clicked for me that I, I think this is what the popping represents. It's like you go to high school with people and you think that they're going to stay in your life. But then the day comes when suddenly they're not anymore. They're just gone. A lot of them, maybe not everybody, but everybody is scattered to the winds. I think that's very astute. I think one of the things I really like about this premise is it actually, this is like a very weird connection. It made me think of Toy Story in the sense that it is like a high concept, but one that is very open to symbolic or literary readings of the premise and like different elements of it. So like people debate, is Toy Story really a metaphor for religion? And my take on Toy Story in general is that like it can be about a lot of different things depending on like what you want to emphasize, really. And that's kind of here, too, is like I've, I like that it is not so on the nose with its concept that it is forcing you to say, hey, this is a movie that is really about school shootings or, hey, this is a movie that's really about uh, friends leaving your life abruptly when you graduate and I think there are ways to read it that are like that. And I really like what you just said. I think that's that's a pretty compelling way to think about it. Like these people just kind of gone because one thing it does is whenever somebody dies, it it has like a little thing where you see the person in like a going for a school photo. It's like the way that person will be remembered is like in a yearbook or something like that. I don't know. Oh, yeah. And then it blinks and then it's just the backdrop. Yeah. Yeah. But you're right. There is multiple ways to look at it yeah definitely so another thing on we just have to make it to graduation that was odd to me because i mean i know they it's like isolated to this one class and is of people at a high school so i guess intuitively kind of that way makes sense but you're right why would that stop anything yeah and the weird thing is like it would be one thing if the characters kind of take that approach and like that mindset but really the movie also does not leave any doubt that this is like over ish like 
the tone very much shifts from what's going to happen like next, who's going to blow up next to like, here's how we cope with this and feel sad about all the people we lost and the end of innocence and all this stuff. And I was like, but wait, somebody could still blow up at the graduation. I was like, now this would be a curveball. The movie is like giving every clue that we should accept that this is over. And then if someone were to blow up, then that would have been a curveball. Um, but it, it alas didn't. And I was expecting it probably wouldn't because there was only like 10 minutes left in the film at this point. But it made me think of our discussion in Happy Death Day, where she just assumes that if she gets out of the day, she's broken her time loop curse. But like there's absolutely no basis other than that's a precedent that Groundhog Day set for her to think that. Right. Right. She could live the rest of her normal lifespan and, and die in her bed and still wake up on that same day, perhaps. We don't know. Yeah, I was wondering, like, okay, so we don't get a cause for why people are popping, but we also don't get a cause for why it's just people within this narrow subset. And I, I was wondering, like, was it just people who were in that classroom at the start? Because it seems like they would have run out. So I guess it's the whole grade. I Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know either. Um, cause it, you're right. It, it feels like I was using class in the sense of like, uh, 400 people, or that's about what mine was of like people who are in one year, but it also seems like they fit into a classroom sort of, which is like, uh, maybe it's a really small high school. I don't know, but that didn't exactly track for me. Like I was like, who is the population? It's definitely the seniors, but it, it was not very clear on that. And, and they say in the end, in the quote unquote end, 31 people have died from the... I, I was wondering, is that the tally from Virginia Tech? I think it was 26. Uh, I could be wrong. Let me look it up. I was going to say fun fact. It's not a, not a fun fact. It's 33, in fact. I was wrong. So you were close to right. 33. So the killer... Does that count the killer? Is it the killer and 32? Yes, 33, including the perpetrator. Yeah. So pretty close. Did you yeah. know that I was there for that? Yes, I did. So I was wondering if you were going to bring that up. <laughs> yeah, I was in the dorm that was like 200 feet from where the first, if, if you'll recall what happened in the Virginia Tech shooting, there was a one murder at a dorm. And then then it was at a uh, classroom or like a, it was a school building was where most of the people who died were shot there. And my dorm that I was in at this time was like directly between those two. And one of my best friends lived in the dorm who where the first shooting was. I had two classes in the school building where it was. One of my uh, assistant professors was one of the people who died in that shooting. One of the people who lived on my dorm hall was one of the people who died in that shooting. So I had a lot of connections to that. And so it's a little bit less so now that I'm like, you know, 10 plus years away from it. Honestly, we're getting up on 15 years away from it. I feel less viscerally connected to like these school shootings that you see on the news than I used to. But like the first few years after it, it was just like so surreal. And like, I don't know, I just had very weird mixed semi traumatic, but not really traumatic reactions whenever there was one of those. And so, um, yeah, just I, we're on a tangent here, but that is something that has been a part of my life. So very, very surreal 
to just be like in the midst of it. And so I guess to that extent, I should maybe like empathize a little bit more with uh, Mara because like, I don't know, similar to how I was there, but not an actual victim myself. She was there too. So I don't know. But yeah, so the movie then kind of pivots to the its ending, which is Mara makes up with Dylan's mom. They comfort each other at the graveyard where Dylan's tombstone is. We see that Mara is like in the process of starting to heal. And the movie ends with Mara and Tess, I guess, as 18 year olds moving into that beach house. At least I think that's what it was. There's like some of this that's her envisioning the future. But I think we're supposed to take that she is actually doing this after graduation. Or at the very least, you know, renting it for a while. That's true. It could be like a, a spring break or a summer vacation type thing. And then the movie goes out on this very profanity laden carpe diem type monologue where uh, Mara imagines seizing every moment of her life, having kids, maybe becoming president. And I think the last line is because why the fuck not? And that ends spontaneous 2020. Dylan's tombstone says I'll be right here on it, which is an E.T. reference. And they made a lot of E.T. references when they were in government quarantine. But also an interesting epitaph to have, because that's true of anybody who's underneath a tombstone. That's just where they're going to be. They're not going to go anywhere. Right. It's kind of funny. It works pretty well, I would say, because it's like a reference, but also, as you say, very literally true. But also his mom says he designed it himself, which when the death cause is just instantaneous obliteration he was thinking ahead I, I guess he heard you know mara bring this up of this could happen to anybody and he immediately went home texted her and also told his mom what tombstone he wants yeah that's interesting so we we've wrapped the movie which is where we pivot to some good things and some not so good things and that's actually a good lead into what i think is a not so good thing about this film is I think there are certain angles of the experience of the abrupt and unexpected death that is looming at any point that this movie captures well. But I also feel like there are elements of it that it kind of missed. And I feel like the types of that exact thing where it's like the sensation that this could literally happen to me doesn't really seem to occur to Mara except in a jokey way. Like she doesn't have that existential like what if I die? What would it feel like? And what would I want my parents and my friends to think? What would I want them to do? And I feel like if you are in a small population of people who this very much could happen to, that those types of thoughts would be a little bit more on the forefront of your brain. Yeah, we don't quite get the thorough analysis of all the angles like in Groundhog Day, where you really get to follow along with the thought process of, but what if this? But what if that? and running all the variables. This is why I would have liked to have seen the scientists some more and just more of discussions between the classmates. Right. Yeah, I agree. You know, kind of like, I mean, in Scream, where we had all the characters going over the rules and, well, the killer did this, so what does that mean? Exactly, yeah. I, I think that would have been more of the type of movie that I would have wanted to see. In general, this ending did not land for me is the way the movie wanted it to like, I don't know. It ended on such a like attempt at inspirational that it just felt like not the ending of the movie 
that we had seen thus far. Like the tone shifted pretty abruptly to this, this like, I don't know, not happily ever after, but like you can make life grand when like the theme thus far is like shit happens abruptly and it's a very weird and unnatural thing. And here's how normal people cope with it. It it just, for me, I would have liked to have seen something more groundhog day ish where he, it like the premise itself aligns with the culmination of the film, where in this case, like the ending here could have been the ending to anything that there is like a tragedy, you know, it, it wasn't specific to the spontaneous premise. I thought, right. We should have done like the Monty Python and the Holy Grail ending where suddenly the director pops or something and the camera gets knocked over and <laughs> yeah, then nobody knows what to do next. Well, I thought it would have been funny if, or clever or something, if there was like one last footnote pop noise or something, and it was left ambiguous. Was this the sound of her popping? Was it just like a reminder of the PTSD she deals with? Was it Tess being with her where it happened? Like, I feel like it could have done one stinger that it didn't do. As far as a couple of things I actually liked, um, I did like the cast. I thought the cast was good. I liked Langford and Plummer's chemistry, and I I just thought everybody was well-suited for their role. Pretty likable and pretty funny. The side characters were pretty funny. The parents were good, although the mom, I thought the mom looked so young. And I looked her up, and she was actually 44, but she looked like she could have been 31 or something like that. Yeah, what what is that? Is that Piper Parabo? Yes. Yeah, I think she was doing, you know, teen movies not too long ago. So I caught that too. I've heard that name before. Yeah, she, I know her, I haven't actually seen it, but I know her as the star of Coyote Ugly. Okay, so not exactly a teen movie, but yeah. Certainly like playing young women, but yeah, anyways, she did did not look 44 to me. What about you, Brian? Anything on your mind that uh, we haven't talked about that you thought this movie did well? The production design is good. Lots of blood. I've said it. I mean, it just washes over everything. There's a scene where the first investigator shows up to the classroom where the first person exploded and like tips their desk forward. And it just all sloshes out of that little desk cubby where people would stick like books and old sandwiches. (laughs) And that was gross. Yeah. I also wanted to call out the movie for really going there with one scene. Uh, I like it when movies have a scene where it, pulls absolutely no punches and goes all in and has like a scene that you're like, Oh shit. Remember when that movie did that. And for me, the scene where everybody blows up and then Dylan blows up right in Mara's face, that, that is a scene I will remember for me. So, uh, yeah. Oh, I don't know if it's good or bad or what, but both Dylan and Mara were film geeks and just always Mm. talking about film. So that also felt like scream to me. Interesting. I can see that. Yeah. So another thing that struck me is the humor for me was a little bit of a mixed bag. Like, I don't know. I used to be of the mindset that like a well-placed and unexpected your mom or that's what she said joke that shifts the tone can be a very funny thing. But I, I found myself rolling my eyes most of the time when it was happening here. I think maybe I'm just getting older and like finally at last moving out of my teen comedy phase, at least a little bit. But for me, the humor was up and down. I did like when it did 
the more black, violent humor stuff when people would blow up unexpectedly. That was always fascinating and riveting to me. Yeah, some of the edginess of the humor felt forced. Right. Just how much she's just walking around doing drugs. And I know that later on in the movie, it's like emphasizing the trauma. And this is her coping mechanism. But just felt kind of cartoonish in her like... I don't know, not raunchiness, but just, I'm going to walk around and swear at everybody in their face. Right. Especially the closing monologue. Just like, she's like, yeah, fuck that shit. She says stuff like that a whole bunch. And I was like, this is weird way to to have your main character be speaking to the audience. Like, again, it's, I guess you're right, starky, edgy teen stuff. But I, I agree. I thought there was a little too much of that, too, for my tastes. Hmm. Any other things that didn't work for you? Not too much. I got a little bit about what you're saying of why is this the end? Why even think that it's the end? They do say, and after that, people just stop popping, which I think ties it to my interpretation of it representing graduation. But I almost feel like it would have served the ending they went with better if they emphasized that people could still pop at any moment. I agree. Like, if the message is that you're supposed to seize the day, just continue the looming threat. Right, right. I agree. That would have felt a little bit more in line with with the movie for me. The way you just phrased that made me think of Office Space, where he goes into like a hypnotic trance to not care about work. And as he's supposed to go out of it, the hypnotist dies. And so he's stuck in this trance where he doesn't care about work. And that's how he lives his life. And it makes him happy. And <laughs> this could have been like the exact inverse of that. Right. You got to care a whole lot because you only live once. Like, And you could pop like a balloon. I think there was a Lonely Island song where... They interpreted YOLO the opposite way that you would think. It's like, you only have one life and it's really precious. So you got to be super careful all the time. <laughs> don't don't cut loose. You got to play it safe always because you only live once. So what about you, Dan? Any any final thoughts to throw at the wall and see if they stick? <laughs> like the like Viscera. Yeah, I did have one. And that was I had a slight proposed rewrite and you actually hit on it earlier. I think this movie should have cribbed the structure of Groundhog Day more. Have like stages where the characters go through it. So there's the disbelief stage. Maybe there's like an exhilaration stage where like, oh my God, I could pop at any moment. So I'm going to go do crazy things. And there's a stage where they are just all depressed. And there's a stage where she's like, can't sleep. And it's like looking at herself in the mirror with baggy eyes and like shouting at herself. If you're going to pop, just pop or something like that. And and then finally, it ends in kind of more of an acceptance stage where, yeah, I mean, maybe the moral is live your life to the fullest. But like it feels like more of the end of an arc than than this movie did for me. Another thing that if I were to rewrite this, I would include more of is more of the parents and the community's reaction to this, because there's just a little bit of it, which makes me wonder more about like, what were they thinking? It's like, I don't know, if I was a parent and my kid could blow up at any time, I would just be like constantly overwrought with anxiety and panic and stuff. 
And I feel like the movie didn't dip its toes into that in the way that might have been kind of interesting, like a little bit more on the the how this tragedy impacts not just the victims, but the community around them. Right. I, I think there is definitely potential to bring in other characters, kind of like maybe this is too much of a tangent, but in the song in Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog, So They Say, where it's just jumping around to all these characters who are like hearing about the events on the media and stuff. Like, this would make news. Everybody would be talking about this, not even just the the little insular community. Exactly. And I want to know about the analysis that's happening on CNN and that kind of stuff. That's exactly my last point of my rewrite is we show her looking at like the conspiracy theory subreddit for the, the curse or whatever. And I was fascinated. I was like, show me this. I want to see what, what does everybody think? What does the world think about this thing? And it's like, what is Anderson Cooper saying? What is Ben Shapiro saying? Exactly. Yeah. They have a little bit of that. Like it's suggested that like some of the crazies, like the far right religious crazies are like blaming it on sin in the world and stuff. But we we don't get too much of it. And I wanted more of it than, than we got. Yeah, I was like too vague and too gentle. I, yeah. It was that was a sign that it was pre-COVID for me. Like not not really in the thick of late stage COVID stuff going on. It should have more barbs, more more society is coming apart at the seams. Have it be more broken down by political ideology and yeah. more doubt in the government. Although we did have that one character who was the one who was in like the padding that kind of collapsed, who he was kind of the skeptic. Yeah, he just wanted his lawyer all the time. Yeah, that, I liked that guy. That was kind of funny. Although I do think the question about what does the pill actually work, to me, felt ripped straight out of the headlines of vaccine skeptics in this, these COVID days. That's true. All right, that is the extent of my thoughts on how I would make this movie a little bit different, more to my specific tastes. and Because just in general, the teen stuff like plastered on top of the premise I liked the chemistry. I liked the characters. I liked, I actually bought the romance, but I feel like instead of maybe the 60 40 split we get of the exploding stuff with the team romance, make it like a 80 20 split. More of the what's going on in the world and what's going on with the explosions and a little bit less of the, the teen romance. Although this romantic element worked better for me than in Groundhog Day, which is something I harped on quite a bit during our time loop month. Right. All right. I'm ready to answer our trademark question in our, our signature section. Is it good? Brian, is Spontaneous 2020 good on our eight point goodness scale, ranging from one, very not good, up to eight, our masterpiece rating, Tour Day Good? So I'm actually going to pencil this one in at very good, six out of eight on our scale. I was pleasantly surprised. I didn't really know what to expect. I think it delivers on the premise in as much as you will believe people can pop. I don't know. It's just blood balloons going off left and right and good use of practical effects for the most part. And it's messy. Like this instantly leapt up to one of the bloodier films that I have seen. And, you know, it at least pontificates on oh this could happen to any of us for a bit i don't know if it's going to haunt me the same way that 
the spontaneous combustion book did when I was a kid, but it scratched some of that same itch. It it made me apprehensive. It was a disturbing film, more so than I was perhaps ready for. Cool. So you have it at very good. Yeah, how are you feeling, Dan? I'm actually exactly there with you. I am putting this at a very good as well. That is a six out of eight on our goodness scale. A lot of my quibbles come with the fact that I think by and large, it did such a good job of conveying that this is real and this is horrifying and could happen to any of the characters we're seeing at any moment and giving us just bursts of violence and gore and terror that we're like actually seeing and putting us in the heads of those characters. And I don't know. I I really liked it. I thought it was very compelling in the way that it kind of explored that. And I I wish it could have done a little bit more with it. You know, I don't have it quite up at a, at a exceptionally good or a masterpiece rating toward a good, because I feel like I wanted to see it poke at the edges of the terror that it was depicting a little bit more, but by and large, it, it has moments of just, phenomenal greatness that is not like anything I've ever seen in a movie before. And when it's clicking, my mouth was open and I was, my heart was beating and it's not like suspenseful, like scream, but it is still a horror movie in a different way in its own right. The sheer prospect of just people blowing up everywhere. And and I like the cast and I, I more or less like the characters and the teen romance felt legit to me. And yeah, I, th- I think it's a very good movie. And um, I don't know if I will be itching to watch it again, but it's certainly one I wouldn't be opposed to watching again. So there you go. All right, Brian, we are still in October. I think we'll probably be recording in November, but you're going to be assigning in October. Are, are we going to be continuing something spooktobery? Yeah, we haven't quite left the month as we're sitting here now. We're about uh, two or three days out from the big day, Halloween. You know, we like to stretch our theme months to that extra breaking point, maybe beyond the point of good taste. We just want to hit you with a little something extra. And so, indeed, we will have a fifth week of Spooky Month, so-called, because I want to turn our discussion to Disney Channel original movies. Oh, yeah. We have sung along when we covered the whole High School Musical franchise. And we're not going to be too far from that territory this time around because the films I am assigning are Zombies 1 and Zombies 2, which are supernatural horror teen romance musicals. So not necessarily all that far afield from the genres that we're in today, but a musical element and actual zombies, not just... Blood and Guts. Yeah, significantly less Blood and Guts. In fact, (laughs) from the bits that I've seen, I wonder if there's any blood in it at all. But they are zombies by name, and we're going to discuss the significance of the supernatural teen romance genre. Very cool. I am legitimately excited to watch these. I'm just fond of breezy musicals, so... This should be a fun one. Well, I guess we'll see. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Uh, Other film news. I just found out today there's going to be a Buzz Lightyear origin story movie theatrically released. Bizarre. 
Yeah, I saw that too. I saw the trailer. I mean, it looks like it'll be well made, but as we mentioned in our chat to each other, if you were to like give me a dream list of origin stories of movies I've seen, even Pixar movies I've seen, even Toy Story characters, if you were to have me do a dream list of origin stories, Buzz Lightyear would not be at the top of the list. You know, I kind of feel like the first movie, Toy Story movie, is sufficient in giving me the picture. And then even the the later ones, especially the second one, it's got like that video game scene that opens. I I get what Buzz Lightyear is. I don't need to necessarily see more of that, but that's OK. I, I'll go into it with an open mind and maybe I will enjoy it. Yeah, I've been pulling for a live action origin story for Al, the guy who runs the toy barn. <laughs> I want to see him as a younger man in the cutthroat business world of the 80s. That's good. Establishing his brand. Wayne Knight, yeah. But also worth noting, we've already seen a Buzz Lightyear movie, if you're hip. They made the direct-to-video Buzz Lightyear of Star Command, which was followed by an entire TV show. So, yeah, we've explored the Buzz Lightyear IRL canon. I hope they at least mention some of his crewmates from the TV show, because otherwise, what did I do with all that time I spent watching that show? <laughs> it's like any time they scrub a canon clean. It's like when Star Wars did the mass extended universe wipe when Disney bought it, and they renamed that the Legends. It's like the... You have another phrase for it. It's like the alternate stories... Concept unification? Oh, no, that's not even what I was thinking of. That's the term I would use for it. I was thinking further adventures. Like, does, doesn't further adventures imply that it's not necessarily canon? Oh, true. True. That's the razor word for it. Yeah. Now that you've heard from us, we want to hear from you. Email us a review of Spontaneous or any film we've previously discussed. Each week, we'll read one of your reviews on the podcast. And if we pick your review, we'll send you a $5 Amazon gift card, enough for a free movie rental. You can send your review to thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. That's thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Brian, we got a submission. Oh, excellent. What are we going to hear? So this comes from <laughs> my brother, Will, once again. He, he wrote us in again. He asked me if I would be open to having him write in again. I said, we're not getting anyone else, so go ahead and go for it. So he caught up with one we watched a while ago, and that is Palm Springs. So here's what he had to say. Hey, Brian and Dan, your favorite brother, fraternity slash biological, Will here with another quick review. Recently, I was bored and I watched Palm Springs. I listened to your episode, which I'd been putting off until I saw the film, and I found myself agreeing with a lot of what you guys said. It was the beginning of your time loop month, and a lot of your dialogue about the film engaged with its similarities and differences to Groundhog Day. I haven't seen Groundhog Day in years, so that was not my mindset going in. Anyway, here's my review of Palm Springs. When the credits rolled on the movie, I really liked it. The characters and setting of the time loop were fascinating, especially because I'm a pretty big fan of Andy Samberg and Kristen Milioti. She almost redeemed How I Met Your Mother Season 9 by herself. However, the more I thought about the movie, the less I liked the time loop, and the more I liked the metaphor of it. I'll start with the bad. You guys did a good job pointing out some of the many flaws of the loop. Which loop remains after they break out? Why is Niles still in the loop when Roy shows up in the post-credits scene? How did Niles adjust to life outside the loop? What was up with those fucking dinosaurs? How did he remember his dog if he forgot his job? There were just too many questions at even the slightest bit of scrutiny that left me scratching my head. 
I think you could poke a dozen holes in the script, each worth some criticism. In particular, many of the side characters, especially Roy, felt criminally underutilized. In the end, I don't think it really matters for much my, on my enjoyment of the film, though, because the time loop and subsequent exiting of it serve as a really sound metaphor for marriage, or at least commitment to a serious relationship. The loop is a stand-in for casual relationships. Niles and his cheating girlfriend, his endless one-night stands with Amy before pulling her into the loop, Amy dealing with the aftermath of a presumably drunken mistake. And when Amy is pulled into the loop, we see the development of legitimate feelings, Niles finding the one amidst a sea of meaninglessness, Amy having to push past her regrets and mistakes, deciding to accept Niles' feelings and committing to actually pushing past the meaningless phase of the relationship, which is the equivalent of getting out of this time loop. It forces maturation and commitment to their relationship. And finally, punctuating the film, we get the stinger of Niles revealing his dog to her, proving that even when you think you know everything about someone and have decided to take the leap with them, there will always be something new to learn about them. I think there are many interesting connections between the structure and development of the time loop and the progression of a serious romantic relationship and in that sense, I really like the use of the loop, and I like the movie as a whole. Anyway, you end your episodes with your signature section, so I'm going to get there too. I'm going to say that Palm Springs is a very good movie, a six. Answer the question of what the hell the dinos were in the context of a loop or a relationship, and I might even consider bumping it up beyond that. Much love from Japan, Will. So there you go. Thanks, Will, for watching Palm Springs, and thanks for writing in. Any reactions, Brian? Yeah, thank you for sharing your thoughts. I'm glad we've got you thinking about some of these films that we've covered, and you always do a thorough job. We encourage other listeners to write in as well, so we have even more voices here. So that's all I got. Thank you, Brian, very much, and thank you, listeners, and have a good evening, everyone. Thank you.